On the Record with Gavin Riley on News Talk. As we're mentioning, it's June the 6th today, anniversary of the D-Day landings. It's the anniversary of the UK's referendum to stay in the European Economic Community. That's the one back in 1975. wonder how that turned out. Uh, it's also the birthday of Bjorn Borg, winner of five Wimbledons in a row. Um, it's also happy birthday, not necessarily today, but this year at least, to Ireland's first dedicated Museum of Contemporary Art, because Emma turns 30 this year. Opened by Taoiseach Charles J. Hawhey in 1991, Emma took up home in an unlikely symbol, I think, of the old order, the 17th century Royal Hospital, El Kamenum, just outside the city centre, just to the western fringes there. It's championed both Irish and international modern art. It's hosted sometimes controversial exhibitions and a symbolic mock funeral. What you might not have known, though, is that its story is in some way connected to the success of Jacob's Biscuits, without whom there might not ever have been an Irish Museum of Modern Art. And how it came to be is a story that tells us a lot about the Ireland of the time of Charles Hawhey and exactly who had influence over the Taoiseach. Um, Donald Fallon has been both eating Jacob's Biscuits and reading up <laughs> on the topic in order to investigate uh, how all of this came about. Uh, Donald, good to have you in Getting again. Getting out of bed on a Sunday morning well, to defend Hawhey on the radio. I never thought it would be, never thought it'd be me. Yeah, this, this <laughs> pandemic makes mugs of us all. Um, is it fair to say that we haven't always had the best relationship with art? We, we definitely haven't always had the best relationship with the idea of displaying art and museums and galleries uh, and the like. And it's never really been straightforward in, in Ireland. There was the shambolic handling of the collection uh, of U Lane. At one point they proposed building an art gallery bridge replacing the Hapenny Bridge. Uh, a suitable means they felt of presenting some of Lane's collection to the city. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Slow down. Sorry, right, park, park Emma for a minute. Yes. They wanted to have an art gallery bridge. And isn't that a great idea? In, uh, if the weather was always like it is yeah, this weekend. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Dr- drawn up by Lut- Lutyens, one of the great architects of his day. The idea was that people could engage with art and the collection of Ulane yeah. as they made their way through the city, as, as they made their way to work. Unfortunately, one of Dublin's leading businessmen, William, William Martin Murphy, condemned ah, the idea and famous. said he would rather see in the city one block of sanitary houses at low rents replacing a reeking slum than all the pictures ever painted. And in the end, we know what became of the U-Lane paintings. You know, mm. We ended up basically losing them for periods of time. And the complicated shared nature of their, of their display over the years has caused a lot of tension. But some, one thing we got right, very right, uh, it's 30 years since the birth of, of the Irish Museum of Modern Art. I think it's fair to say it is one of the finest such museums uh, in the world. It's a great centre of visual and increasingly performance art. And yeah, it's nestled in a very unlikely symbol, as you say in the introduction, uh, of of the old order. And the choice of the venue and the grounds on which Emma is based, it still kind of reveals sometimes surprising links to, you know, the old British Ireland and to the place that we had in the empire. Yeah, even when Emma was closed through the lockdowns, you know, people were walking through the grounds and becoming kind of more more mm. familiar with, with the site. And there's a lot of kind of stra- strange things hiding around Emma if you look closely. Uh, there's a headstone in the garden to Von Allel, the beloved horse of Field Marshal Earl Roberts, who trekked around India uh, and Afghanistan with him and was buried, bemedaled, in what's now the grounds uh, of Emma. Sorry, there, there is a literal war horse a, a with war a medal. A war horse, a literal war horse buried, buried in Dublin. But they're kind of other little reminders too, you know, that, that the Royal Hospital Kamenum was not created as a place in which to display mm. modern art, but to house kind of sick and veteran troops uh, of the British Army. And so when we won our independence, there were big questions around what to do with something like the Royal Hospital Kamenum, what could it become? And in the very infancy of the state, you know, 22, 23, it's actually a place that some people said would be ideal for an Irish parliament. There was a big ah. debate over where to put Dáil Éireann. Mm. College Green was, you know, perhaps historically the right place. Yeah, Grattan's the, parliament. the first purpose-built well, by Cameron yeah, Parliament building well, in the world. The Bank of Ireland didn't agree with that one. <laughs> <laughs> they, they'd bought it fair and square and they, they weren't moving on. 
But another thing about College Green is that, you know, there was a, uh, a sense, I think, in the, among the free state that it couldn't be protected. It couldn't be defended. It was open to attack. Mm, yeah. So Kilmainham, for many people, you know, removed from the city, surrounded by expansive grounds, uh, was preferable. But as we know, of mm. course, and as, as you know from your nine to five, Leinster House uh, ultimately won mm-hmm. the day. And, you know, probably the family home of Lord Edward Fitzgerald and George in Dublin was probably an easier sell uh, than something many felt was perhaps just too yeah. colonial, the I, Royal Hospital. I know there is still an argument among some in Leinster House that actually the time is right to have a sort of a bespoke parliament building and maybe not necessarily to co-opt the grounds of the Royal Hospital Kilmainham, but to move out to somewhere like that where you'd be able to build a facility that wasn't just an old 19th century lecture hall reconverted into <laughs> a, a parliament. Uh, maybe that's a story for another day. Um, modern art, contrary to what some might think, it was popular enough in Ireland before Emma came along, even if there wasn't a bespoke permanent venue for it. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I think it would be wrong to suggest that modern art kind of, you know, was something that was totally alien to the Irish public before Emma came along. Uh, you know, for such a small country, we were actually really, really interested in modern art. There was the brilliant Rosk, which was a modern art exhibition held roughly every four years uh, from 1967 to 88 in Dublin. You know, work by artists like Pablo Picasso, uh, Roy Lichtenstein, and really talented Irish artists like uh, Bobby Balla, Patrick Scott. And it always drew in, you know, huge numbers of people who were curious about this kind of new emerging art. Some of it was really incredible stuff. Uh, Marina uh, Abramovich, I can never pronounce her name right, Abramovich's Rest Arrow in 1980, a, a live performance piece where a co-artist held a large bow with a steel arrow directly pointed at her heart while microphones recorded the sound of their heartbeats uh, and their breathing. Just incredible wow. live performance art, which really captivated us. Mm. Uh, and, you know, a contemporary art critic said about Rosk that Rosk is one of the boldest and most illuminating international exhibitions of modern art ever held. The new and the old salute each other over the centuries. Dublin has provided the ideal setting for their astonishing uh, encounter. But what was obvious, I think, about, about Rosk was while we were bringing these great artists and their work mm. uh, to Dublin, we didn't really have a place to, to show the stuff off. You know, some of it was being shown, for example, in the Guinness Brewery. And if you walk around the exterior of, of, of the Guinness Brewery today, you can still see kind of fading pieces of art mm. uh, around the Guinness perimeter site. So I think what Rosk highlighted was, one, the Irish public wanted to engage with modern art. But two, there wasn't really any place in which they could go and do that. Yeah, it's a it's a useful reminder actually that it's not just about sort of uh, the you know the visual uh, painting or sculpture arts that it, you can have live performances there as well. I think also uh, before uh, COVID came along, I think it was also the proposed replacement venue for the Tivoli Panto. Yes, um, Alan Hughes and Carl Broderick had proposed to build a new Panto Dome down there. Um, we know that um, Hi opened Emma, as you said, um, but it was as we mentioned in the intro, it was a biscuit tycoon who perhaps pushed him to do it. Yeah, and you know, those are words you hear very often. A biscuit tycoon, <laughs> biscuit tycoon, that biscuit high, baron. That how he came to open Emma, I think, is reflective of the influence of a couple of people over him. Gordon Lambert, born in 1919, very successful businessman with Jacobs Biscuits, art collector over decades, incredible private art collection. He donates an astonishing private collection of more than 300 works to the museum wow. in the early 90s. I mean, that is just incredible and he built just such an incredible uh, private collection I mean his biographer talks about how work was displayed in the Jacobs factory and in his house where his sculptures overflowed onto his landscaped garden can you imagine if you worked for Jacobs and this <laughs> incredible collection of modern art was literally you know popping up see we've got a new Roy Lichtenstein on the wall there in the way to the canteen yeah. <laughs> you do yeah. but this guy Biscuit Tycoon we may call him you know he built such an incredible collection that uh, he was invited onto the International Council of New York's Museum of Modern Art. Okay. One of the most you know, significant museums mm. uh, in, in, in the history of art anywhere. So thanks to Lambert, we get this this move, this push for, for, for Emma. 
because he, he feels there's an open door to be pushed. And what he does is he invites the International Council of the Museum of Modern Art to come to Dublin to view his collection and he chooses the Royal Hospital Comenum okay. as a venue. So what he's done there is he's put the idea of the Royal Hospital as a site where art can be displayed you know, into the heads uh, of, of the government and you know, puts the site firmly into the mind uh, of, of the Taoiseach. And as the Dictionary of Irish Biography, incredible resource, we use it all the time mm. on this slot, rightly says that the prestige thus incurred and Lambert's pledge to donate his collection to the proposed museum persuaded the Taoiseach, Charles Hawhey, to proceed with the project. So although the venue sort of came about because uh, Lambert had had his sort of ad hoc exhibition there and then the seed was planted, not everyone was so positive about the idea of Emma or indeed about the location that had been suggested for it. Absolutely. You know, also in, in Charles Hawhey's air and very much in favour of the Royal Hospital was, was the great Tony Cronin, Anthony Cronin, poet, uh, distinguished writer, uh, advisor to Hawhey on the arts, very much Hawhey's man on, on, on the arts. Mm. But I mean, there were other people who were not enthusiastic about the move. And in his very recent book, Burning Heresies, Kevin Myers talks about Hawhey and Cronin's relationship. He talks about Hawhey acting under the deranged guidance of his cultural guru, Anthony Cronin. Wow. Hawhey ordered that this ancient jewel be turned into a modern art gallery. Now, nothing if not dramatic as usual. Just tell Kevin. us what you really think. Yeah. The Kevin converting the Royal Hospital Kamenim into Imma was, quote, both an architectural tragedy and a cultural travesty. Its new role suited Hawhey's perception of himself as a modernising Gaelic warrior king and sponsor of the arts. I actually love the way Kevin Myers writes, even when I, when I don't agree with him. Mm. But I think that Myers' criticism is really unfair because anyone who walks through the grounds of Imma today and kind of through its various spaces, I don't think you come away thinking that this was some slight against uh, the old order. I no. actually think when you walk through Emma, you get a sense that the place is deeply conscious of its historical setting. Mm. They haven't bulldozed the past, you know, to, in the name of modernity. And I think it's really the juxtaposition of modern art and the very historic site that makes Emma so special. I'm not aware of any other modern art gallery quite like it. Yeah, in the world. it's a fair fair point. Actually, I hadn't considered the the sort of the, the contrast between the the new art and the old setting. But you're right; it does kind of seem to to marry in a way that you might not have anticipated without going down there and seeing it for yourself. Um, a guy called Declan McGonagall then takes the helm, and Derry, in its own way, also contributes. Perhaps, maybe, if not one of the most memorable, the most memorable pieces in the Emma collection. Yeah, Declan McGonagall, incredible story. He made his name in the, the Orchard Gallery in Derry, which opened in 1978. I mean, that was sometimes be opening a gallery in, yeah, in the walled in Derry, city of, yeah. of Derry. There was there was much going on on the streets. There was much performance art going on uh, not far away in, 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 in the bog side. But it captivated people at a time when there was so much negativity uh, around the walled city. And, and to quote another, they said his programme at the Orchard, decidedly political in focus, linked the local with the international and was based on a view of art uh, something that couldn't be separated from the socio-cultural matrix. But then for Emma, when, when, when Emma is on, under her stewardship, some incredible things uh, happen. And one of those things is very firmly linked to the city of Derry. People that are listening to this slot now might walk through the grounds of Emma uh, later on today. And if you do, see if you can find the grave marker uh, of a man named Patrick Ireland. Brian O'Doherty, a brilliant artist and, and art critic, uh, born in Roscommon in, in, in 1928, mm. decided that at the time of the Bloody Sunday Massacre uh, in Derry, what he would do is he would adopt the name Patrick Ireland, later telling a journalist that the name at least became a reminder. Every work I did after that gained a political context for me and for anyone who may have wondered who Patrick Ireland yeah. was. I mean, he was a very distinguished writer. He was with the New York Times as an art critic. But that symbolic changing of name, you know, when he rebrands himself as mm. Patrick Ireland, he did it in the, the Project Arts Centre, 
uh, in a piece entitled Name Change was, was very, very meaningful. And he said at the time that he will use the name Patrick Ireland until such time as the British military presence is removed from Northern Ireland and all citizens are granted their civil rights. It's a, it's a really striking uh, method of performance art in his own right. Uh, so striking that then when the time came, uh, Patrick Ireland, uh, alongside the decorated war horses of old, is actually buried on the grounds. It's quite beautiful that by 2008, uh, Brian had already felt that you know his own criteria uh, mm. had been met with the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, yeah. the, the peace process. So the withdrawal of the military and civil rights for all and the likes. Yeah, so symbolically, uh, an effigy complete with death mask was buried in the grounds of, of the Royal Hospital Kilmainham okay, in yeah. May 2008. Several hundred people were in attendance for the burial. And you know, if you if you go to him, I'd see if you can find uh, the resting place of Patrick Ireland. And you know, long may he rest mm. in the shadow of him. <laughs> That's uh, that's remarkable. I just love that as a concept. Um, IMA continues to grow, but ultimately, I suppose in a global context, despite its very grand and, and ancient setting, it's a very young museum. It is. And in recent years, I mean, I've, I've, I've just had some great days out going to IMA, really memorable exhibitions. Wolfgang Tillmans, great photographer, you know, varied work by, by Lucian Freud. And I really like the way they've put Lucian Freud's work on display uh, alongside work by Irish artists, kind of, you know, responding to to each other. And they've done a lot of meaningful stuff, you know, in this kind of ongoing decade of centenaries as well. But I think, you know, like all our museums and galleries, isn't it great to have them back? It's something mm. that we warmly welcome. But, you know, the birthday is a reminder uh, just how young the museum still is. You know, for, for once on this slot, I'm actually older than what I'm talking about. <laughs> so you know, here is here is to the next three decades uh, the, and beyond. The, between this and Alan McLaughlin's Golden Winter <laughs> yeah. Park, like you're really, you've jumped the shark it's now. It's frightening you're, you're for doing, the historians when the, when the stuff's happening in your yeah, own lifetime. You're, do, you're doing stuff that you personally <laughs> bore witness to, which is, it's not how historians are usually supposed to work. Uh, Donald Fallon, author of the Community Books and of Henrietta Street 1914, which is available in all good bookshops now. Thank you very much for joining us. Also, the presenter of the Three Castles Burning podcast, which you'll find wherever you get your listening material on the internet. 